Hello, everybody. It's that exciting time when you hear that music, you know it's time for the Rec Poker Podcast. It's actually the Chats edition, even though you're hearing my voice. I'm Jim Reed, but I'm sitting in for the one and only Steve Fredland, who can't be here today. And uh, we're going to be joined by our panel. We've got a special guest here today. I want to thank the uh, website AMP, which I was going to say the great people at website AMP, but it's Mark Prashan. He basically uh, keeps this website running. Thank you, Mark, for everything you do. And of course, the running aces, hotel, racetrack and casino. Um, So a couple things just before we get started, I'm trying to do my best Steve impression here. Um, we are taking Wednesday nights off in um, February because of the free JAT and training course. So instead of releasing a bunch of paid uh, premium videos on Thursdays, uh, we're going to release a bunch of free videos on Thursdays instead. So um, it's never been a better time to go get your free community account at rec.poker. All it costs is an email and you're going to have twice as many free fun videos to check out in the months of uh, February and March. So check that out. Um, I am joined by John Somsky and Rob Washam and uh, our special guest who I'll get to in a second. John and Rob, why don't you tell the folks where they can find you? I am John Sonsky and Poker Geek MN everywhere, and I am happy to be here tonight. And I'm Rob Washam, Radman50 everywhere, and just want everybody to know that the dailies at South Point Casino are getting over 150 players for every mm. tournament. Mm-hmm. So wow. it's popping down. And uh, our special guest might have something to say about all those poker tournaments going on down there in Las Vegas. He needs no introduction, but I will say it anyway, the one and only Ryan LaPlante from Learn Pro Poker. Ryan, how are you today? Thank you for joining I'm us. I'm doing great. I mean, it, live poker feels like it's, you know, really starting to come back. Um, just things in general feel as though they're finally starting to wrap up a bit with COVID. Obviously, there's still, you know, hurdles we need to get through and there's still obviously a decent amount of risk, but it feels as though we're like maybe not out of the woods, but like we can see the edge and uh, you know, I'm still going to be taking it pretty easy and being very careful. I'm only playing a couple of the bigger events also, you know, upside of being young, um, you know, and also being, you know, pretty healthy. I don't have any comorbidities or anything like that. I'm in pretty much one of the safest groups outside of, you know, teenagers and younger so I definitely think I'm taking risk by playing live, but it's uh, one that I think is worth taking for me personally. Um, that being said, I definitely think people should be very careful, you know, take things at their own pace. Um, and especially if they're in a higher risk group, you know, within the next couple of months, you should be able to get a vaccine in most cases. Um, I mean, honestly, if I just set a date as a, a fair over under us when I get vaccinated, probably be like 10 weeks from now. So I think like mid April is probably a pretty reasonable ballpark. So, you know, if you, if you're someone that really wants to fire live, uh, but you're in a risk category, take it easy, wait a couple weeks, wait a couple months, you know, you should be, uh, out of the neck of the woods and completely clear and able that being said, the stuff that's running is ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's really, it's ridiculous. So apparently uh, WPT, they did their first live series, you know, their first big major live event back right down in Florida and Florida WPT is always massive. Apparently they hit like 1700 entries, like right around there. And that was 
even considering the fact that they had a limited number of tables because they didn't have enough dealers. Hmm. Apparently, if they had had the proper number of tables and dealers for the field size that they ended up getting, they probably would have gotten an extra three to 500 entries, which would have made it the largest WPT field ever and would have wow. made it, you know, one of the biggest prize pools ever outside of, you know, the biggest 10Ks, you know, LAPC and Bellagio. Um, and the numbers down here, you know, you run a tournament, the guarantee on it doesn't matter. It's getting crushed. <laughs> like uh, this 1600 uh, that I just played in, which is the first tournament I've played in two months live and only the third tournament I've played in 11 months, which if you told me that was going to happen, uh, I would ask you if I died because that's the only, you know, thing I could have, you know, imagined. And uh, the 1600 was like a 1600, 500K and it got 800 entries. And it's just like ridiculous. And it was the softest 1600 I've ever played in my life. So yeah, things feel as though it's finally, you know, starting to happen. I know we're still not through it and there's still plenty of risk and all that stuff, but it's happening, which is great. Honestly, I, you know, I love live poker. It's what I'm passionate by far the most about that and coaching. And, you know, it is just so great to actually be kind of back. Also, uh, speaking of which, John, John, it's actually great to officially meet you. I don't feel as though we've met in person or if we have, I don't remember it. This, there's so a nice. there's a backstory here. It's because John has had his self-portrait up every time you guys yeah. have been in the chat together. And he uh-huh. recently uh, joined the technological revolution. There, <laughs> that picture might look more familiar to you. Yeah. That I think you've seen here before. But I'm not as scruffy in or I'm scruffier in real life than I was in that picture. But yeah, only yeah. recently. I like it, John. Are we gonna talk about your beard? Because you're wearing it well, sir. It hasn't come up on the air. I like it. I I typically have one during the winter when snow blowing season is out. And then once snow blowing season is gone, it'll go back down to a goatee. Mm. And I'm letting it get a little more scruffier than normal because I'm not out and about in the world the way I normally am. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt there. Ryan, continue no, with no, your story. No. It's nice to actually, you know, be able to officially meet you and visually see you. You know, I've you know, I've always enjoyed all the stats stuff since that you've provided. It's always been, you know, great. And I'm sure, you know, everyone else really appreciates being able to follow along more easily, especially during like the summer. It's really nice to be able to see how other Minnesotans are doing and be able to follow along quickly and easily. Yeah, it was kind of interesting this year. I didn't because all of the World Series was online yeah. and with the online tournaments, those were always harder to track for me yeah. anyway, because uh, mm-hmm. they just went so quickly. Um so I ended up not doing it at all, but uh, I missed doing that, you know, from previous years. Right. For those who don't know, I kind of reported out what the Minnesota stats were at the WSOP every year. So we kind of got a, a running total for that. It is. It's a Minnesota friendly crowd. I know that, you know, mm-hmm. you know it's uh, we like rec poker here in Minnesota. There's no doubt about it. And John's a fixture, you know, if it's not just our our own um, online home games, it's uh, tournaments and stats and keeping track. Uh, the guy's unstoppable. I don't know how he does it, but uh, <laughs> it's nice. And I'm glad we got a chance to take the photo away. Here we go. Yeah. <laughs> So Ryan, you were saying that, and and I agree with you, by the way, I mean, everyone has to make their own decision, Mm -hmm. but if, if you told me that there was a vaccine on the horizon, that would not be when I started loosening up my protocols. That's when I would sort of, I would just keep, keep safe a little longer and maybe even, you know, a little safer than I thought I might be because, uh, you know, the, uh, there's this light at the end of the tunnel. Right. 
Exactly. Um, yeah. If I had, you know, any risk categories at all, mm-hmm. or if I was even 10 years older, I would just be waiting another you know couple of months, but you know, with live things finally popping back here and just how much I've missed it. I don't mind taking on a little added risk just to uh, scratch that itch. Yeah. Uh, but I'm trying to be reasonable with it. I played this big 1600. I'll play the MSPT next, uh, next weekend. Um, I'll probably take a week off. Um, also the numbers here have been consistently dropping. Um, in mm. fact, actually, I think our last number was the lowest number we've had in two months, something like that. Um, so I, I check it every day. I make sure things are consistently going down in terms of all of the different numbers. Um, and if I see things start to pick up at all, I'm going to stop going, even if it's just mm. a slight pickup, just because I know there's, there's that LA strain, there's the UK strain, there's Brazil strain, there's a South African, there's another one. Um, and if any of those end up being really bad, I could be taking on a lot more risks than what I expect. So if I see numbers even start to tick up a little bit, I'm just going to stop again. You know, I went... I essentially didn't play a single hand of live poker from March, from like early March until uh, November, like second. And then I didn't play again until this last event. So I I went a pretty long stretch without playing a single hand. um, And we're generally very careful as well. Um, The nice thing about what they're doing uh, for Vegas live games is you know, there are the dividers between everyone. Everyone must be wearing a mask. Um, and then on top of that, if you leave the table and come back, you must be seen hand sanitizing before you sit down. Hmm. The dealer must actively see you. If they don't see you hand sanitize, they make you go back, grab some, and then sit down and do it. Um, and then on top of that, you know, like when someone leaves, you know, the floor part of like removing uh when a player busts a tournament is floor comes by sprays everything down wipes it all down and then another player can come in so i think they're doing a pretty good job of making sure uh you know staying on top of health protocols on top of that if you're wearing a mask must be above your nose and everyone's been doing a good job of that down here and they're also very good at enforcing that the only mm. people not wearing masks are those that have, you know, medical exemptions and stuff. So pretty much every single person mask above nose, proper wearing. And then also on top of that, a lot of people are wearing the KN95s or doing what I'm doing, which is double masking mm-hmm. and having a, having a cloth mask on top of a medical mask um, ups the, the effectiveness of it. So they're definitely doing a lot of stuff to minimize risk. If they weren't doing all of that, I wouldn't even consider thinking about playing. Um, that well, being said, even with doing that, it's still, yeah, still a decent amount of risk. Like if I play all the weekend events coming up, which I do plan on playing, I'm sure I'm a significant favorite or a significant likelihood to get COVID a very significant likelihood. Well, I'm I was going to say, but a good chance. I mean, we are uh, most of the people listening to this are poker players, mm-hmm. and it's not like we live in a zero risk environment, right? Right? Like exactly. zero risk is not actually something that you can attain. So you yeah. can take these steps to minimize the risk, to mitigate, right. you know, the factors. But you know, if you've ever felt good about getting aces in preflop, then <laughs> you felt good about a twenty percent chance of something going right. wrong. You know, so um, you know, I think poker players are kind of naturally a little more attuned to sort right. of that risk spectrum. But that being said, we're also the type that goes, yeah, I, I remember getting an Aces Prey. It, it got sucked out on the last five times. <laughs> so that's also something that I also think about. And like something else to consider as well, if you're someone that 
you know, generally has a more optimistic view of things. Most people think they're way less likely to have something bad happen to them in general. Mm. So that can definitely, you know, give you kind of a rosy view, which is good, except for in high risk scenarios, in which case you should be on the safer side of things. <laughs> but, so. but haven't you heard, Ryan, every poker player that you've spoken to is the most unlucky person in the world. I know, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I was just going to say, when you hear about, you know, there's only a 5% chance of this surgery going Mm -hmm. poorly or whatever. And as a poker player, you think 5%, I've been sucked out on the 5% thing a ton of times. (laughs) Oh yeah. I mean, 5% is one in 20. That's not that uncommon. That means if you do the, do it 20 times, one of them is going to be bad. Right. Statistically, obviously not realist, but so it is kind of interesting on both sides. On the other hand, we also look at it and go like, well, that's 54%. That's pretty good. I got to go with that. You yeah. know, mm. yeah. Right. So it's all about like risk and like more of my reason of talking about this stuff is I don't want people to go, Oh, Ryan's playing live. I should start playing live. It's more, there is a decent chance I get sick and there is a decent chance that, you know, that could cause issues and I'm young enough and in the safe enough group and healthy enough where I don't mind taking on some risks to, you know, just to get in a couple events here and there. Um, but mostly I am waiting. I'll, I'll just play a couple big things and, you know, just wait the extra month or two. Um, so like, like I said, I think it'll be, I would be surprised if I'm not vaccinated before June 1st, I would be very mm-hmm. surprised. Very, mm-hmm. very surprised. Finger, um, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed would for have you. to go wrong, really. No, don't say stuff like that, right? <laughs> don't, don't. Possible. It's possible. I hope not. So you, you did get a chance to play recently and you'd had all this time. You've sort of been, you've been missing it. You've been thinking Mm -hmm. about it. So what were the things that you missed most? And then when you got a chance to play again live, how did that, how did that correspond to your time there? What was the parts that you relished the most? I think the easiest way for me to explain this is kind of in a roundabout way. Um, So I've been, you know, back playing live. I post, you know, hand history polls and that type of stuff. And uh, one of the hands I played uh, was one of the first hands I played for, honestly, it was, a, it was actually, might've been the very first hand I V-pipped playing live again. The very first hand. Um, it was, it's a pretty ridiculous hand. One sec. I <laughs> find it. Do it. I love that we get to bring a little strategy into this. This is great. <laughs> and really, Because of course hand, it would be the first hand you V-pipped, right? right. Like it would be. this hand really exemplifies what I love about live too. Cause this hand literally only ever happens live. There's a one sec. Almost there. Almost found it. (laughs) Okay. So also this is like one of the most ridiculous hands I can think of playing in the last, you know, since before or since before COVID. Mm -hmm. So it really sets it up. Okay. (laughs) So here's the situation. Um, I got to the 1600. I was somehow as an alternate, um, waited like 40 minutes, got sat. So I get sat like, I think, uh, halfway through or near the start of level three. Um, so it's one, two, two with the $200, uh, anti 30 K start sack. So starting 150, uh, big lines deep, um, hijack raises a 500, Cutoff calls, button calls. Um, the uh, the key player in this hand is a button. He's the person that I ended up playing this hand verse. 
So he's, he has a, a hoodie popped up. He's got a hat on and he has a mask and the mask covers like that. So all I see of him is like his eyes and his like cheeks. And I can see like, you know, how, how he's breathing. I'm looking for like a pulse on the neck, face, cheeks, hands everywhere, not seeing a pulse. So, so I've got like no pulse tells. I've got very little on the eyes. And he went, he went hat, hoodie, mask, no sunglasses. That was yeah, his, no sunglasses. So he's not no like necessarily trying to cover everything. It's just, right. uh, yeah, okay. he just, you know, was doing the hoodie route. And then of course COVID stuff. So yeah, yep. reasonable. Uh, so I three bet out of the small blind. I have ace of spades, queen of spades. Um, and because it's a race to 500 with two calls. Um, so my three bet size, the way I think about this is when you're 150 big blinds deep effective, even your in position three bet needs to be at least three X at stone minimum. Um, and versus like an early position open, you should be at least three and a half Xing, even four Xing. So if it was just versus the e an EP open, I'd three bet in the button to like 2K, uh, 500 to 2K, four X. Um, so because it's uh, an open in two calls and I'm out of position, the way I figure out the size is first I would go, okay, versus open, how big should I go? And because I'm out of position and we're 150 big blinds deep effective, that means I at least want to go 4X, but really I want to go 5X. Uh, even 4X would be going too small versus just that open. So I want to go to 2,500, but then there's those two callers. So I want to add in those calls. So I want to go to at least 3,500. Um, going 3K would be fine. Going smaller than 3K would be a significant mistake. So I threw back to 3,500. Opener folds. Uh, the first caller folds and the button calls. So it was hijack open, cutoff button. I three bet, button calls, other two folds. So uh, the pot size going to the flop is 8,900. Um, I have them slightly covered. Uh, so they had like played a, a couple of hands. Maybe they're down to like 27K or something like that, 28K. So this is literally the first hand I V-pipped back live. Uh, never seen this guy in my life. Uh, so the flop is eight of diamonds, six of hearts, deuce of diamonds. I have ace, queen of spades. So I have zero diamonds, zero hearts, just ace, queen, spades, black, you know, it's two black cards. So I've got two legitimate options here. Um, because I'm pre-flop aggressor and they called the button and then called again, I'm at a large range advantage. Um, and even though this is like a pretty wet board and technically one that can hit his calling range, I'm still at such a massive range advantage. For the most part, I should be betting this. But I figured that his calling range was either hands that really drilled this or hands like king, queen, king, jack, queen, jack, jack, 10, jack, nine, 10, nine, like ace, four suited, that type of stuff. And if I bet, most of that stuff's just going to fold. So if I check, I get to keep in all of his lowest equity hands and allow him to try to run a bluff. So I check. Um, he bets... Let's see here. Uh, he bets one sec. He bets 5K into a pot of 8,900, um, which even though this is a large bet, because enough of his bets just have very little equity versus me, even though I've got a weak, vulnerable hand, I actually have more than enough equity where this is a very happy call, like very comfortable call. Um, I could also, if I want to keep things easy and not give myself difficult decisions, I can just check raise. I can just check raise to like 13K. And if he has the, you know, the trash hands, he'll just immediately fold them and I don't have to face difficult decisions. But 
I'd rather just have the difficult decisions, trust myself <laughs> to make them, put myself into a good spot to, you know, to win a big pot. So I call. Um, turn is where things get kind of spicy because the turn is a seven of spades. Mm. So now the flop is eight, eight, six deuce with two, uh, two diamonds turn seven of spades. So now there is three to a straight, uh, two to a flush. And i just have ace queen high, no blockers, nothing. So I check, um, when he bets, he has, 13k more behind so he has 18k right now and with his bet of 5k in my call that means there's 18k in the middle almost 19k in the middle so he has about a pot size bet back so my thinking is you know let's say you're him and you have a hand like pocket nines and i checked you what are you doing you're probably just jamming um let's say you have a hand even as strong as like 10 9 like a straight you're probably just jamming because you you know don't want the everything to get there on top of that you also assume that if i have a hand like aces you want to try to play for stacks as well so you don't want the river to be a really scary card and all of a sudden i check fold on it so if you have a straight even you know sets all that stuff you probably just want to jam instead he bets 5k which what hand does he want to bet 5k with there's just like nothing that makes sense like logically speaking either he has a hand like 10 nine of diamonds Mm. or he's just like clicking buttons and has no idea what's going on, which, you know, being a live event wouldn't entirely shock me. So it's possible. That being said, it just seemed so full of it. Um, also, I'm getting such great odds. And also I could just have the best hand if I river an ace or a queen. So I can justify calling 5k to me, almost 24k in the middle, getting almost five to one on call. So I call. Um, so the pot size going into the river is essentially 29k um and oh sorry he has 18k back so he has uh oh wait no never mind. No, yeah, he, has, like he does have 13k back yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. he does have 13k back so the uh pot size is 28k river is the four of diamonds so now the board is eight six deuce with the eight deuce of diamonds turns seven of spades river four of diamonds so there's now one card straight possible and flush draws got there <laughs> <laughs> I check and he goes all in for 13k. <laughs> so when he bet that amount on the turn, I was very confident that he would mostly just have bluffs anyways. And then on this river, I still think he mostly just have bluffs. Um, that being said, it's possible he had a hand like ace five that river to a gutter ball straight. It's also possible that he had some type of like diamond hand. Um, so even though I'm still confident that he's going to be bluffing all of his non-equity hands that get to the river, I can still actually just tank and see what reads I can pick up. And yeah, he's wearing, you know, he's got a hoodie. I can just like barely see his eyes. I can't really see his face. So it's like this. I don't really, you know, I can't do what I would normally do, which I'd be looking for like pulse tails, be looking at his eyes. I'd be, you know, any, all of that type of stuff to try to pick up extra information. Instead, all I can do is watch him breathe which some people just always breathe heavily. This guy from the 10 minutes I sat at the table seemed like he wasn't like a, you know, super heavy breather. So instead I just essentially wait two minutes and just watch his breathing and see if he moves at all. See if he does anything that might, you know, give me some extra information. And after about two and a half, three minutes, he's still breathing heavy, which why would you be breathing heavy two minutes in if you have the nuts or something? So he's, definitely bluffing so i call and i beat king queen i call <laughs> eight queen high we play a almost 300 big blind pot 
with me calling the ace queen high on a four straight three flush board. So that was my first hand back playing live. And the thing is, is this hand occurs online. I see bet flop probably. If I don't see bet flop, I check raise flop. And if I don't check raise flop, I probably just consider check folding. And then I definitely check full turn. So I lose a pot. Instead, I double up and, you know, immediately have like a great stack, you know, to do work in the tournament. And there were so many times where my opponents would just look down at the flop and I knew they were going to check raise or I knew they wanted mm-hmm. to lead, but mm-hmm. like didn't, you know, they were like considering leading or like I had a spot where a guy like called pre-flop and when he was like deciding whether or not to call, I could tell that he was thinking about three betting. So I knew he was trapping pre on his call. There was just like lots of spots where just from the way my opponents would look at a spot or move Mm. to grab chips or whatever, even though their faces are protected and everything else, I can still pick up on these tells. And a lot of these tells are pretty easy to pick up on if you know what you're looking for. Um, And most people, if anything, even with, you know, masks and everything, they're as easy to read, if not easier, because they feel more protected. They feel more comfortable. They feel as though they don't have to be incredibly careful in these spots. And instead, every time someone gives me that information, I just get to check back. I get to save bets in spots that I would never save bets online. On top of that, the way in which a lot of them just build decisions, I can pretty quickly tell who's a fun player to what degree, you know, how comfortable they are, like, even things like how much money they have by how they're dressed and how little they care, how much they care, how hard they're, you know, sweating different things. You know, you can pick up just so much extra information without even someone make a single decision that you just don't get online. Um, On top of that, then when they do make decisions, because those decisions are so like clear and you know, and in front of you, you just get so much added information and like, yeah, using stuff like HUDs and that stuff can give you extra information, taking notes on people, color coding them. You know, I do have access to tons of different information online, but it's just not anywhere near as good. People think online you get more info. No, 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 no. Live, you get way, 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 way more useful information that you can use immediately in any given decision. And it's just become so powerful and so useful. So, yeah, I yeah. fucking love live. <laughs> yes. So much. yes, sir. I really did. I love it. We, well, we've got some members in the chat. Uh, ben mentions just it's crazy how different online is uh, to live, which is exactly yeah, as ridiculous. we're saying here. And it's like, and you're, you're right, of course. I mean, mm-hmm. you get different kinds of information live and online, but the the live information tends to be, you know, very specific to that moment in the hand, right. you know, like the online information tends to be more, what kind of player is this? What kind of frequencies right. do they play? What are their ranges like? Um, it's much less about like, what are they doing in this action point? Uh, whereas right. live, you really get to zone in, on, you really to get to zero. And, oh, thank you, sir. Um, and so you can be much more exploitable in the moment in, in the live tournament. So we actually just dropped uh, a seminar uh, where Zach Elwood was helping us out talking about tells and reading tells. Mm-hmm. And um, I think for recreational players in particular, it's uh, it's a real area where, you know, the, the big easy tells are where you're going to get a lot of your information and maybe like maybe not presenting some of those tells yourself on defense the is kind issue of part of it. with right from um, my 
biggest suggestions to players that aren't like as good about reading tells is just protect your own. Mm. Um, that's by far the most important thing because, you know, picking up tells on people, it can be, it's very inexact and something that you think you pick up on um, just might be wrong. Um, there are certain things that are always true, but especially during COVID, those things are a lot harder. Like the main one, which is why you would see like the Euros wearing scarves and stuff are pulse tells. That's the only one that I have 100% reliability on. Every it, other tell is just a guess. And just break that down a little bit for the folks, because I think it's so, it's the one that we're least familiar with. Right. You know, We're so mostly looking at hands like and the, eyes. The best, the best one by a mile and the only one that I would suggest looking for. Um, all the others, it's more about just protect yourself, make sure you're not giving anything away, acting too quickly, that type of stuff. So the pulse cell is really cool. What it is, is, you know, when you can see someone's pulse just like beating pretty clearly, really your heartbeat and your pulse is something that's very difficult to control. It's something that like, even I like controlling your breathing, you can do to some degree, you can, you know, take quick shallow breaths you can breathe deeper you can do whatever so controlling your breathing you can like give away false information or you can control it super easy your pulse though you're not controlling that unless you're you know a really good meditator you know someone like that that has a lot of uh practice with slowing down their heartbeat or if you're like an extreme athlete everyone else they just can't and so what it is is when someone's nervous or when they're excited they're pulse like really beats and it becomes pretty clear. So what you want to do is you want to first get a baseline, make, you know, see where their pulses, uh, yeah. see where their pulses initially. And once you set that baseline, then during a hand, when they're excited, you can see what it's like when they're actually truly excited or nervous. And what you do is you wait for it to either keep being really, uh, fast and hard or for it to slow down. If it stays fast and hard, it means almost always that they're nervous. Um, usually you have to wait like two minutes or so. Um, some people might, you know, slow it down a little faster, but usually anytime someone's pulse stays hard and then slows down, they're not nervous. So either they think you're never calling or most likely they're just not nervous. So they just have a monster of a hand. Um, and if, of course, if their pulse is really going super hard, especially after two, three, four minutes, they're really nervous. What would they be nervous about? And on it, there have been, I would say there have been at least three or four of like my deep runs and big major live tournaments that relied on a pulse till at some point. Hmm. Like um, my, my, uh, third place finish in 1k um last live summer so in 2019 uh there was a really big pot i played with like 100 people left where the only reason why i called was because of pulse read literally the only reason no other reason that was i actually had a really bad hand to call with i had a hand that was like a mid pair that blocked bluffs that blocked a lot of bluffs too so theoretically i did very easy fold and when I got to the river and the and it was like a younger pro of some kind, you know, maybe 25 or younger. Um, and he jammed the river on me. I'm like, well, technically I am supposed to fold this, but let's just look at him. Let's just see if I can pick up on something. And then I saw his pulse and it was like hammering. 
And then three minutes later, it's still hammering. And I just called. And that was the only reason I called. Literally it. And it was a it was like a massive pot because you three bet me and I check called flop, check called turn, and then check and called the river jam. It was with like I'd like jacks on like ace ten four with a flush draw, uh like brick brick, and I had jacks with the flush blocker. Right. Uh, when you get to the river and you double block their Broadway cards and block, you know, their flush draws, it's a fold. Unless <laughs> And like, it's, it's just things like that where like online, I'm just never, ever thinking about calling there. I snap fold the river without even thinking about it, unless I have some other absurd online tell, which just isn't really a, as often of a thing. Yeah. And, and one thing I wanted to ask you about that, because uh, this, this is something that we talk about from time to time is when you're sitting there at the table, you've got eight other folks around the table with you. Mm-hmm. You talk about like establishing a baseline. Um, so for the first while you're there, you're just kind of trying to notice what people are like naturally. How, how intentional do you have to be about actually like memorize, like, like remembering what someone's baseline pulse, like, like how do you even train yourself to do that? It's not even necessarily about actively remembering. It's more just about looking at them and just allowing your subconscious to do the work. Mm. Like you, mm-hmm. you don't need to be actively really thinking about stuff. The only times you should really actively think about something is when it's like something stands out, like how quickly they bet in a spot. You know, when you see something that's really clear and obvious, you know, sizing they chose that type of stuff, then you think about it. Cause then you're trying to commit it to memory. But in general, you're more like, like the main stuff that I'm paying attention to live is who's open limping, who's raising pre-flop to a weird size. When someone three bets, how long do they take two three bet? And then how big do they make it? Do they make it an okay size? Do they make it a good size and make it a great size? Are they like really screwing up on it? Um, anytime a hand goes to showdown, always look at the two hands. Um, always pay attention to how big a bet size is relative to the size of the pot. You know, is it a reasonable spot for this person to be betting a quarter pot? Is it not? You know, why did they overpot here? What type of so on and so forth. I'm, I'm not necessarily looking for specific things outside of big mistakes, like types of stuff a pro would essentially never do. That's all mm. I'm really looking for. And so then because I'm constantly looking for that stuff, I'm also just constantly looking at people without staring at them. Um, and that makes it also a lot easier too, because you can pay attention to what's going on at hand. You can follow the action. You can pick up information. And then when you see something really weird, then you can go, oh, this is how he looked in a spot that I thought he was really strong. Mm-hmm. And then when I when it goes to showdown, I can remember and commit it to memory and go, that's how he looked like really strong. And then when I do play a hand versus that person, then I'll have actively thought about it. And then I'll have the entire length of the hand to remember what they look looked like and that type of stuff. And even then I'm still not necessarily trying to remember everything. All I'm trying to do is just allow my subconscious to, to follow up on the decisions. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, maybe a key decision point I'm trying to actively remember. Um, so when I'm like sitting down at the table, as you guys, you guys have seen the, um, the player plot charts that I use in terms of, are they loose, passive, tight, passive, loose, aggressive, tight, aggressive stations, maniacs. You know, when I see someone make decisions, I'm always trying to fit them in on that. I'm not even, I will maybe try to remember a key hand for like big spots, but really I'm just going, 
this person's probably loose passive. This person's probably loose aggressive. This person's probably tight passive. This person is loose passive pre tight aggressive posts or loose ag- passive pre loose aggressive posts. And then I'm usually trying to remember maybe how well I think they're playing. But beyond for beyond that, I'm not like exactly remembering stuff. And, you know, it's kind of like playing a game like chess or anything else. If you try to remember something specifically, it's going to be very difficult. But if you try to just remember kind of what you thought about them as a general overall, just what your feelings are about them, that's much easier to remember. And then it's also much easier to be dynamic and to shift that feeling about things. Yeah, and we talk a lot about sort of learning about the factors to consider in the moment mm-hmm. rather than trying to have like a solution in mind for that moment. Because really right. what you need to do is you need to be problem solving in real time. Right. What are the factors I should be thinking about? What are the assumptions I can make about this player? Right. And it, it's funny to hearing you talk about it. Um, you know, you, you play in professional circles. So for you, the tells are things that make you think, huh, this person is not a professional level player. Like this is the kind of mistakes that they're going to make. These are the kind of assumptions I can make about them. Whereas for us, I think when we're playing live, a lot of recreational players, half the job is, as you say, looking for the players making certain types of mistakes. And then the other half is looking for the players to look out for and like, Oh, that person actually knows what they're doing. I got to look out for this one over here. That's part of the equation too at at our level. And and I love that you spoke about sizing because I think Mm -hmm. sizing is one thing that I think you can tell a lot about what level a player is on, especially in unconventional spots, multi-way pods or pods where there was an odd sizing pre-flop or something. Um, Because you can tell our our member, Kim uh, Petvet, you can sort of tell the button pushers who are just out there doing half pot, half pot, half pot every time. Um, The the, the real experienced players know how to use smaller sizings, larger sizings over bets. Right. Um, So that's a great thing for folks that are looking for something to key into. See if, if you see someone make like a really obvious sizing decision, um, that's, that's a great indicator, I, I think, personally. Really, for me, the most common one I'm looking for live is open limping. Mm. There are spots to open limp that are very good, but they're rare unless your 25 big blinds are less deep. If you're deeper than 25 big blinds, an open limp is only correct in like bubble and final table scenarios and like certain tournament types. Beyond that, open limping is just almost always, not just a mistake, but like a very significant mistake. Almost always. There are, the only exceptions really are those 25 big wine and less spots. Um, yeah, that's really about it. So because of that, you know, when I see someone open limp, I can immediately start making an assumption about them. But especially if they're doing it at 60 big wines deep, it's just there's never a spot to do it that deep effective. So anytime I see someone do that, I go, oh, are they probably a fun player? They almost always are, and they almost always are either loose passive or tight passive, and they're more likely to be loose passive. And just from that one subset of information, I can make a ton of other assumptions. I can assume that, oh, they like their hand to some degree and they want to play a pot, so they're probably not really going to fold preflop. Sweet. So when I have a good value hand preflop, I can just go really big. Oh, well, if they're passive preflop, I can also assume they're passive postflop. Oh, this person all of a sudden check raises me. I wonder what they have. It's probably better than top pair, you know, things like that where it's become super easy to like super easy to play versus them. Yeah. One of the things I've seen lately is you'll see a couple people limp and then somebody will raise 
to three three big blinds. Right. And it's right. like, okay, did you just realize that two people just limped in front of you, or right. are you just playing your two cards and know that okay, I need to I need to raise this, and oh, three big blinds is my raise size. Right. Exactly. Like, what? That's you know they're not thinking. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's a pretty common thing as well. Is either raise sizes over limps or three bet sizes versus raises. Like if someone raises the two big blinds and someone three bets to five big blinds, chances are they're making a mistake and chances are they're making a somewhat significant one. So I can start making some assumptions about other mistakes they're making. Some of this will often be because of just experience playing. Like there are very few things that beat experience. Like, Mm. yeah, you can learn all these different things, but to actively apply it at the table, Unless you've really been put consistently putting in work, you're just going to miss things. You're you're also just going to make the wrong types of assumptions pretty regularly. Yeah, and that was one thing I was going to say. The assumptions that you can make about players when you see one little mistake like that, you can make some. You can extrapolate some things about right. their play, like the players mm-hmm. that limp passively uh, and wide pre-flop are tend to also going to be wide and passive post-flop. Right. They're going to tend to call your value bets. You know, their raises right. are going to be the nuts only. Um, so you, you can kind of extrapolate a lot from those. So oh, knowing, yeah, definitely. knowing those types of things to look for that are not just different, but also kind of like a key to the way they think about poker. Um, yeah. I would say that that's a really important key too. like seeing the open limp is like one of my go-tos of, Oh, I can make, like 20 other assumptions about them. And while some of those assumptions might be wrong, the majority of them are mm. always right to a big mm-hmm. degree too. So like, like I'll do stuff like I see someone open lamp and then when I have a value hand, I'll raise like kind of small ish relatively. And then when I have like an actual, like a really strong value hand, I'll just bomb it. Um, and like, like there are hands that I played where I saw someone open limp like twice. And then I pick up like ace king and I just go like 8x or 9x. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then they call, and then I just flop an ace. It's like ace 5 4 <laughs> with a flush draw. And my C bet will be like 25 big blinds into 20. I'll just right. overpot. They'll call, and then I'll jam turn for sometimes even overpot. So I've all, if you guys see me like double up, like I'll pretty often times have big stacks super early in tournaments. And it's because I'm just hyper exploiting in these spots where I'm just playing 400 big blind pots because I know someone just never has a certain hand strength and I can just maximize my hand. And then like if the board starts to get kind of dicey, I can still go for value because I know they're not check raise buffing me. So then I'm just targeting the exact hand that they have. It could be like, it could come like a three straight three flush and I'll still bet for value comfortably. Yeah. So online super deep early in tournaments, I generally just view, view them like that. You know, if I see someone with that, you know, with that limp, especially it's just, it's, it's such a, even though it's such a small thing, it's actually a really, really, really important thing to be paying attention to. And how much, how much of that has to do with like the flop texture uh, when you get to that post flop, like if you want to punish these, okay. Okay. Can you just talk a little bit about then like how you choose? Okay, really, great. I love that. Thank you, Ryan. So, like, so it Ben, has nothing to do with texture. It has everything to do with hand strength. Okay, with your own absolute hand strength. Yeah, at the with time. my own absolute hand strength. Okay, because like when they limp call, it doesn't really matter what the flop is. Anytime you have a really strong value hand and it's not a super locked board, you should just be purely bombing it. You either check back the super locked boards to give them an opportunity to pick up equity, or you bomb it. No in between. 
because when you have that strong value, because so the way a lot of these players think that are, you know, really lose passive and limping a lot is when they limp and call and they hit the flop, their thought process is, Oh, I hit, I get to call. That's it. Like it doesn't go the next step, which is okay. I hit and I get to call, but what is my opponent's betting range here? What percentage of pot are they betting? What does that tell me about their hand strength? They're only going, Oh, I hit, I call or, Oh, I missed, I fold. So when their thought process is that binary, which it often is really that binary, there's no in between. When you hit, you just near pot it. And when you miss, you go like a fifth pot and that's it. Like, uh, it'll like I'll pocket, you know, jacks and it'll come like King queen four and they'll check to me and I'll just bet like a fifth pot or I'll have ace King and it'll come five, six, seven, and they'll check and I'll just go like a fifth pot. And then I'll have ace king and it'll be ace five four. And they'll have even could have seen me bet a fifth pot on that five, six, seven and have it go to showdown. And then on the ace five four, when they checked me and I pot it, they still call versus me, even though I literally always have <laughs> ace 10 plus and yes. nothing worse ever. <laughs> ever, ever, ever. And they'll happily call with ace seven. Turn will be a nine. I'll pot it again. They'll call with ace seven again. River will be a four. They'll check. And I'll just like go all in and they'll just snap me off because I have two pair and then they'll just lose a hundred percent of the time. I'll literally never be bluffing there ever. I'll always have them beat, <laughs> and they'll just snap it off without even thinking about it. I'll double. Like I that's literally often how I build up these really big stacks. So now the difficulty is that those players do exist. Um, they're a little more rare as you start to move up and they're a little more rare as you, you know, play in some of the top tougher games. Um, so then you're looking for where along the spectrum a player, you know, presides. Are they someone that can only think in terms of, I like my hand, I don't like my hand? Or are they someone that can take it a level further, which is, oh, when he bombs it in these spots that I've seen, he's always had these monstrous hands. And then a step further and a step further. So while I'm looking for what player type they are, I'm also looking for how well they play. Um, and there will be different degrees. Essentially, I give really the easiest way to think about it is I give everyone like a rating zero to 10, but I'm not like actively trying to think what the number is. I'm more just going, how fun do I think they are? How likely do I think they're X type of player? And that's more of an experience thing. It's just something that you just have to put in time and effort to really get good at doing. And to get the confidence in it too, right? right? To, to feel good about the assumptions you're making and uh, that sort of thing. So we'll take one more question from the chat, and then I know uh, we got to let you go. Well, we could we could spend two hours here with you, Ryan. So yeah. I appreciate your time. You're always so good at this stuff. Um, Ben's asking in the chat, how many hands do you need on someone to have solid reads? I'm sure the answer is going to be it. Kind of depends on what it what depends, solid reads, but right. So it depends on the types of mistakes they make. Let's say they make extreme mistakes, sometimes just one hand, literally one hand, even online. I'll just see one hand. I'll be able to make a ton of other assumptions about them. Um, however, the better they play, the more information you need. So 100 hands is like, let's say you think someone might play like pretty reasonably well and you're playing online with them. You'll probably need 100 hands to just start to get what type of reg they are, what type of pro they are. Um, you'll need like 500 hands to start to get reasonably good data on them. You'll need like 2000 plus hands to get okay post-flop data. And then you'll need 10,000 plus hands to get really good post-flop data. 
Um, which is why in tournaments, you know, when I'm playing online, I, I use a very basic heads up display. It's just V pip, free flop raise, raise first in, three bet, steal. And that's it. I don't even have C bet on my HUD. I have C bet for drop down. And I only look at the C bet when I have like 500 hands on someone. Um, it's just you need that big of a sample size to even think about the post flop stats or the raise by position stats. You just you need a lot of hands. That's for decent players. But for fun players, sometimes it just literally takes one hand. I see someone three bet four seven off suit versus an EP open. Okay, this person. That's it. That's all I needed. I just needed that one mistake. I see them call preflop with four seven off versus an EP open. Okay, that's great. I see them call with the speculative hand that like you could make some reasonable assumptions that it's not that bad. You know, let's say EP opens and they call cutoff with like king six suited. It's only a little bit outside of GTO. Okay, they might be fun. They might not be. So the bigger mistakes they make, the less information you need to make a ton of other assumptions. But the better they play, you just need more and more and more hours and information to make reliable reads. Yeah, and, and I think also, as you were saying, like the better they are as a player, the mm-hmm. fewer of those obvious mistakes they're going to make. And so the yeah. more your information is going to be related to things like frequencies or sizing or the, right. the edges of their ranges, you know, right. um, the players that are making the bigger mistakes, they're the ones that you're actually going to like make a note on mm-hmm. and say like, right. here, here's something that this player did that actually is worth writing down. And now I'm right. going to extrapolate a lot out of this one action about right. this player as opposed to trying to like find their weak spot uh, in yep, the big picture. Exactly. So. Um, ben had a good follow-up. Okay, mm-hmm. that's really good info for the Steve because I look at it a decent amount. So one of the biggest mistakes you can make as an online player is reading too much in, into the HUD. Um, if you don't grind a lot in small player pools, remove all the post-flop information, use it for drop-downs, and use it only if you have a ton of information. The stuff you want to pay attention to are like the sizes people are using. You know, is the board really static and they're upsizing in a spot where they're just not supposed to ever? Is a board really dynamic and they're betting really small in a spot they're not really supposed to? Are they, you know, betting in spots or leading in spots when they should never be leading? Are they, you know, check raising in spots where they're not really supposed to check raise? Um, that type of stuff. You know, seeing sizes, that's way more useful. But again, the better the player is, the less useful it is. Like, in the past, watching you know televised poker, especially of these like really good players, was way more useful and helpful because when someone made a decision, they're probably making that decision often in that type of situation where their hand falls into a category and this is how they're playing that category of hand strength. While now, if you're watching you know some of the high rollers, even with cards up and stuff, someone makes a decision in a spot, it gives you very little information. And the reason why it does is because I, if I showed you what a, a you know a, a post flop GTO range looks like, essentially a lot of hands in your range will often fall into decisions where you're supposed to do something X percentage of the time. So they might ha- have a flop where with let's say it comes you know queen nine four and they open an EP and cut off calls. Well, in that spot with whatever hand they have, they're supposed to check it at a really high frequency out of position. Um, they're supposed to check a lot of their range, but then the 25% or so of their range that they're supposed to bet, whatever hand they have probably falls into a, like, maybe they're supposed to over pot it 5% of the time. They're supposed to bet two thirds pot, like, you know, 
30% of the time, they're supposed to bet a third pot 25% of the time. And then they use an RNG device. Um, usually the easiest ones live are something called chip dice. It's just how your chips rotated. Um, or they'll like pre-save ones, or there's a handful of other ways you can just RNG at the table pretty easily without it being noticeable that you're doing it. And they could have just like rolled the decision essentially, had a number zero to 100, and then based off of what the number was, make pick a decision off of that. So you could see someone make an exact bet size with an exact hand in an exact situation and still have no idea as to what else they're doing. Um, it, it's, it's really, really cool in the sense that when you do use solvers and stuff, you get to see where they're really exploiting because the exploits become obvious. But when they play a hand that's within a theory range and they make a theory decision with it, you don't really get much info. So it's, it's also just a lot harder too. on top of that. It, um, there, they might've made an adjustment because of ICM in that spot. It might've made an adjustment because the fun player was in the hand behind them or because it was a fun player open or because they have this specific history with this specific player where in a previous spot, they sent this false tell and they're picking up on it or so, there's just like so many different factors. So like when I'm watching these like high rollers and stuff live, you know, on like poker go and things like that, it's more entertainment and also just seeing whether people are exploiting in spots that I would exploit in. Um, I'm not really looking to like learn from them. I'm more looking to see if they're capable of doing these exploits and picking up on certain things and how they're adjusting for ICM, um, which also, which also makes, if you're watching like some of the high stakes stuff, the best way to actually learn while watching is watching the cards up final tables on like uh, party poker and GG, where you're actually watching some of the best players in the world. Cause you get to see the types of ICM decisions are making, which that stuff gets really interesting really quickly. Um, but it's also the hardest way to learn anything, honestly. Just watching, you mean? Yeah. yeah. And a passive learning is a trap that we all fall into, whether it's yeah. just watching videos or listening to podcasts and not taking notes mm -hmm. as you go, not actually activating your mind. Right. Um, if you're listening to this, I hope you wrote some of that down because Ryan laid a lot of good stuff down there and I want you to remember it. So maybe go back and re-listen to this one and get the pen and paper out and uh, be a more active uh, listener and maybe you can retain some of that stuff because I think that's really Definitely. important. Well, Ryan, thank you so much. I really appreciate all this extra time talking about poker. I know it's a passion for you, spreading the love yep, and uh, knowledge about this great game. Um, so thanks so much for coming. I know if people go to rec.poker slash resources, there's a link they can use to get a Learn Pro Poker membership. And, and you can uh, get a discount there too. If you join through Learn Pro Poker, it's 40 a month right now. If you go to rec poker uh, and follow the code that they have, you'll get $5 off a month and you'll keep that price for you know, as long as, uh, as long as you stay subbed. Um, and when we do a sale coming up at some point, I'm sure, um, you can switch over to the lower sale price and also do it through them and they'll get some money from it. You'll save some money. So good win-win all around. Uh, thank you very much for having me on. Um, like, as you can tell, I really enjoy talking about this stuff, pretty much always happy to be on and to, you know, give these conversations and do that type of stuff. Um, y'all might see me around a decent amount more in the future. So I definitely look forward to that. Hope y'all uh, enjoyed it, um, especially those listening. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, like I said, uh, best of luck at the tables, everybody, and stay safe out there. Cheers, Ryan. Really do appreciate it. Thanks, well, everybody. Thanks.
you're the man. That's great. Well, we're we're gonna stick around and talk about some more uh, housekeeping things. But um, feel free to take off and take care of the, uh, your loved ones there and stay safe and get to that light at the end or other end of the tunnel. I want to be playing live with you one of these days. Oh real yeah. Soon. Definitely. Thanks, guys. <laughs> All right. Take care. Boy, that's great. It did it did hurt my heart a little bit for him to be talking about how you don't pay attention to uh, post-flop stats on your HUD um, when you're playing in tournaments because I, I wrote my HUD coming from cash games, so I wanted to drill down on all that stuff. Um, but I, I do think um, one note on that, uh, you can adjust the note tracker if you're working in Poker Tracker 4, and it'll actually start capturing some of that sizing stuff uh, that Ryan was talking about. So there, there is a pretty good way to get uh, some sophisticated information out of there. Let's get some sophisticated information from our other friend, Jonathan Little here, and then we'll get back and wrap this baby up. Have you ever wondered whether you should call a preflop raise or three bet instead? What do you do when you have a flush draw? Do you raise it or do you just call? What do you do with ace-king when you miss the flop? Are you tired of guessing about what the right play is with your particular hand? Well, my name is Jonathan Little, and I am a two-time World Poker Tour champion and creator of PokerCoaching.com, where we offer over a thousand interactive hand quizzes where you play a hand and then get real-time feedback from our world-class pros. Don't guess and don't stress. Just register for your free account at PokerCoaching.com slash RecPoker right now. Can't argue with that. Uh, I know pokercoaching.com uh, is a great site. They have a bunch of great material there as well. Um, so yeah, Ryan is so good. We've got some people typing in the chat. We got to get him on more often. He's so good. I had to stop typing questions. I know. And, and he's not, he just, he loves yeah, to talk. He loves it. He loves to talk poker. I want to encourage everybody. To, I want to encourage everybody to go back to the last time he was on. He gave a lesson on that in that podcast. If you just started writing down what he said, it's a, just a great primer for anybody. Just and all of them is he was talking about the mistakes of he sees rec poker players making, and you just just go down that list and it's just like a it's like a little seminar. It's just fantastic. So check out that last you know, podcast that he was on because it was fantastic. Mm. And you can tell he's just a guy that likes talking about poker strategy. Every time we talk to him, whether it's on the podcast, sometimes he comes to join our Tuesday night OPAs, the online play and hangs. And uh, I think the last time he came to one of those, I think he spent like 90 minutes just talking poker strategy with the group. It was amazing. Yep. Um, and, you know, he's been- <laughs> well, and he always answers the questions so thoroughly. I oh, mean, yeah. the, the under over is, okay, are you only going to get two questions in or will you get a third? And, you know, one of the questions might be, hello, how are you? <laughs> yeah, well, it's great. It's great having uh, Ryan as part of the family. And, um, you know, all this, the, the Minnesota connection doesn't hurt, of course. But, um, and I don't know if you heard him. He was kind of teasing a little something. Maybe we're going to see a little more of uh, Ryan over at Rec Poker, depending on how how some things go. I don't want to get everybody too excited about it. But uh, certainly one of, our, one of our favorite guests and a great, great friend of the show. So, uh, here we are. It's February. We're actually, we made it through the first month of uh, 2021. It's official. And uh, pe- as I mentioned at the top, people are going to notice uh, the, the Wednesday nights are a little light because we're doing these free Jatin courses. But uh, get that free community account and uh, you can review some of those free videos that we're putting out on Thursdays this month. What else is going on this month in uh, Rec Pokerland? Rob, you're uh, working on what will be the next book in the book study? Is that right? 
Yeah. You should see pretty soon. I'm going to be posting something probably on the forums, the book study forums, and uh, maybe something on you on uh, Twitter. But I'll be posting a list of the books that we are have suggestions for, hmm. and then we're going to look to for people to kind of narrow it down. I don't know if I'll do a bracket type thing or something just to narrow it down. Maybe I'll <laughs> break break it into two groups and break them down into two books, and then. Mm-hmm. have those books go ahead to head and we'll figure out which one we're going to go and we'll start that in March. Nice. A little March oh. madness ladder for it. Yeah. John. Is it true that the Lord of the Rings series is in the mix or was that uh, just a fabrication? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try to try to keep it to poker related books. So I don't recall I don't recall them playing any poker in the Lord of the Rings. I think there's some game theory. There's got to be some game <laughs> oh, theory yeah. there. You I'm know, sure there is. <laughs> Battlefield. <laughs> uh, I would actually probably enjoy that. We shouldn't. We shouldn't joke because I'm looking for an excuse to do do more pleasure reading, and I haven't read any good fantasy stuff since I was a kid. Yeah, Ben, I'm with you. Let's get the Harry Potter Chronicles. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think uh, I've seen a few of the recommend uh, a few of the lists that a few of the books that we're talking about rather, and I think um, there's going to be a good answer for Rec Poker members, um, no matter how that goes. So I'm excited for that, and we'll be picking that up again in uh, the third week of March, right, Rob? Um, yeah, that'd be right. Yeah. Right, nice. And then we are also getting excited about the March Madness Heads Up uh, ladder that's happening together. A few of the matches has occurred. No, no spoilers. Uh, we'll see how that all breaks down, but it's going to be exciting. And uh, John, what about in home game land? What have we got uh, that's new and exciting there? Well, we have uh, more home games. Someone was just surprised that in a 31-day month, we had 30 people that qualified for the Tournament of Champions. Wow. And I had to remind people that we actually have anywhere from 9 to 10 daily series tournaments every single week. We have 10 tournaments every week. Sometimes one of them is a no-limit hole-limit or a um, mixed game series. But, you know, so there's plenty of plenty of opportunities to get your uh, chance to play in the Tournament of Champions. Now, having said that, of course, I didn't manage to qualify. <laughs> so... <laughs> Anyway, uh, on January 25th, Easy Breezy, Raul Bittang got mm. his second daily series victory. Fergie 56, Kim Uh-oh. Kilroy. She's here today. Her very first. It's her, and this surprised me, it's her very first daily si- series victory ever. Ah. Um, she always seems to be running deep in these things, so I was really surprised she didn't have a win under her belt. Previous. Well, you're gonna you're gonna have to only wait about another eleven or twelve months for me to mail you that next pin, Kim. Congratulations! I'm excited <laughs> for you. <laughs> then Fancy Nancy eleven thirty uh, got her first daily her his or her I don't know her real name um, daily series victory. Benmar Elizabeth Bennett uh, Martin got her first daily series victory. Congrats, Elizabeth. Elvis 76, Steve Kreps, got his first daily series victory of the year, fourth lifetime. Evil Roy CA got his first for the year. Keck Geek 65 won the Mixed Games uh, daily series practice. Get used to hearing that name a lot in 2021, I think. I think so, too. And Kelly S, 1962-20. Kelly Stork. Go get it, Kelly. uh, First international 
Daily Series victory. And Magra 44, of course, that <laughs> is third International Series wow. victory for the year. So it's third in January. Oh, alone. my God. It and just doesn't end. So to keep in mind, we only had, I don't know if it was eight or ten, but only eight or ten uh, international tournaments in January. And Doug won three of them. Incredible. Amazing. Amazing. And, Speaking of names, you're going to have to hear, <laughs> you're going to get used to hearing. <laughs> yeah. And then to round the month out, Elvis 76, Steve Kreps got his second daily series victory two in one week. Oh my God. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Two in a week. And uh, you know, we get a lot of people in these tournaments. Like it's not like when we started, we've got like 25, 30, 35 people in each of these tournaments. A lot of them now they're getting 50, 60, 70 runners. Um, so when you see some of these uh, uh, repeat winners, they're really, they're, they're doing something to get there. That doesn't happen by accident. So congratulations, everybody. That's fantastic. Absolutely. Well, um, does anyone else have anything exciting to share uh, before we, cue the outro music i guess i would like to thank everyone all our premium members here for sticking around ben doug kim stewie and william of course i'd like to thank the running aces hotel weight racetrack and casino and thank you audience listeners we'll see you again real soon take care